0: So welcome to Deconstructing Health and Fitness with Chris Wilkins and Elizabeth Hefner. We're going to take a look at a lot of things going on in health and fitness today, and we're going to decide whether or not they're actually useful, whether they apply to you or whether they're really taking you in the wrong direction. So over a decade of coaching, clients led me to believe that the only way for people to experience lasting change is for them to understand their habits and systems they have currently in place and move from there. I apply a scientific approach to that. We change a thing. We look at how it works. We decide if it's working or not, and then we change something else and we repeat. You can't just coach one aspect of health and fitness. You have to coach them all at once. Well, everybody, welcome back to Deconstructing Health and Fitness. Today, we have a super special guest, Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon, whose resume is incredibly long and incredibly diverse and makes her a perfect fit for what we want to talk about today, which is this sort of higher level deep health Um, issue. So she is notably the Director of Curriculum for Precision Nutrition, which is only a small portion of what she is capable of. She also has a PhD in Women's Studies and has written multiple books. One of my favorites is Why Me Want Eat, (laughs) because it's like having a conversation directly with her. She also has her own website, which houses a huge amount of knowledge and um, just time listening to her amazing brain, talk to other amazing brains. And so I highly recommend you check that out, but without further ado, here she is. Well, thanks. That's, that was a good intro. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, it's funny. Cause I just sort of feel like I'm just me and I'm just like a regular schmo doing a regular schmo kind of job. And, um, <laughs> so I, I forget that anyone has any perception of me that's at all different than that. So I think I think it's probably a product of coming up through academia because I feel like academia is like being part of the most dysfunctional family sometimes, where your your self esteem is just so systematically eroded and chipped away <laughs> that you emerge on the other side like having uh, hopefully you know very little ego and uh, lots of self criticism. <laughs> So, so any delusions of grandeur are just like, uh,
0: you know, stripped away from you during the process. I think that's really accurate because, you know, anybody I talk to who has had a career in academia or who has achieved anything of note to the rest of the world usually kind of goes, Oh, I'm just a regular person because you are right. It doesn't matter who you are. You're still, you're still a person who has all the regular person things going on and family and friends and activities and whatever. Right. So, um yeah, I think to get things started today, Liz and I've been talking a lot recently um, about some of the continuing struggles she's got with shame around eating. And so we talked just before we started recording a little bit about this idea of of deep health and how some of the first places people get into the fitness or health industry is through looking at their physical well-being. Right. The, the very first thing people do is they go, oh, I'm unhappy. I just need to lose 50 pounds and everything will be awesome. And so they either go to a diet or they go to a personal trainer and thus begins the journey of realizing that actually, uh, that 50 pounds may not be the only thing going on or that it may be a symptom. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think I'm, I'm glad you named the shame because I think that this is an emotion that you know, has an adaptive role to play. And we can talk about what healthy shame looks like if we want, Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of an evolutionary advantage to being conscious about how other people might be seeing us and potentially judging us. Um, But at the same time, I think that this is an emotion that for so many people uh, turns into such unhelpful, behaviors and thoughts and beliefs. And it's a very tricky one because, you know, shame in lots of ways feels like, well, this is just helping me be better, right? If I feel bad about the way I look, the way I eat, what I do, whatever, then that's going to prompt me. So the assumption goes to fix that thing. And sometimes that works, um, not often, or at least sometimes it provides us the impetus, right? Like there's that you know, that moment when you wake up and you look at yourself and you're, you're wearing, I don't know, like a slanket and you're covered in like chip crumbs and you're like, oh, I gotta do something different. Like you've eaten all the Halloween candy, right? And you're just like, oh, I gotta do something different with myself, right? Like, so, so that's kind of like a good um, prompting moment that shame can offer us. And so I think like for a few seconds, it can be a really useful emotion, but it really cannot be the fuel. for for a long-term kind of sane, sensible, sustainable project of change. Because one of the problems with shame, especially maladaptive, unhealthy shame, is that it stimulates our stress response. It stimulates a threat response. And so, you know, shame in a way makes us feel attacked and under threat. And when we're under threat, we can't be creative. We can't grow. We can't uh, soften into some of the ways of thinking about ourselves that actually would allow us to change. So it creates this really messed up cycle of like, I'm not changing, I feel bad about not changing. My feeling bad about not changing makes me not change even more, right? So it, like it actually limits our ability to change. And so I think that's, there are particular kind of ways of thinking and ways of feeling that are, that are, they seem helpful on the surface, like like perfectionism, which is kind of a variation on shame, really. You know, people will say like with a little bit of pride, oh, I'm a perfectionist, right? Like they're kind of proud of that, right? Because they think that it means I'm dedicated to quality. But really, like, again, what it produces is this like threat response or a shutting down response or an overwhelm response. So, you know, with any kind of emotional uh, flavor that you bring to any kind of change product or project or self-improvement project, you have to kind of ask yourself, like, is this actually helping me? If I feel shame around eating, you know, in kind of a chronic way, is this helping me? And I think I'm not sure where you guys have gotten to in your conversation around this, but there's a really good chance that it's probably not.
0: I don't want to speak for Elizabeth, but like my guess is probably no. I think it speaks to this predictive idea that Liz says, you know, sometimes she feels like I know what she's going to say before she says, and I think you've just done that to her again as well, because, you know, it goes back to something you said initially is that this idea that shame is always bad. I think is not the point, right? Because we're not getting to a point where you should never, ever feel that emotion because it does serve a huge evolutionary function, right? Whether you're looking at shame because you've showed up to a party in the wrong outfit or shame because you ate something you didn't really want to be eating, like there's a purpose for that, but that purpose ends at that realization, I think. And you talked about healthy shame versus unhealthy shame. And I think that kind of brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk about today, which is defining what this healthy relationship with food really looks like. Cause we talk about this. We say, oh, well I have an unhealthy relationship with food, or I feel a lot of shame around eating or whatever, but we never really go through and actually define what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with, with food.
2: Yeah. Beyond, beyond what, we see, you know, from the, the, you know, mainstream media, which is like, I have a healthy relationship with food. I use fu- food as to F- fuel my body. And that's all it is, you know, and then anything that is not 100% nutritiously dense fuel is just not talked about. It's just like, no, sh- sh- don't tell like, like, it's just dipped in like, poison shame basically and I will say um because you brought up perfectionist tendencies I feel I was thinking to myself god when I feel shame I feel like I just completely collapse and I'm just like mm. oh my god I need to hide like a scared little chipmunk in a tree I don't know oh. and, yeah yeah I was in the forest last time I felt a lot of shame. So that's why. Uh-huh. And then when I think of, because I, I really, and I, I feel like to use the word suffer with perfectionist tendencies is really where it's at. Cause I don't feel any pride anymore because whenever I feel perfectionistic, I just feel like it stops me in my tracks. Like, Oh my God, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. And I don't feel like this is a thing to be proud of. I think it's like, Hey, this is not working, you know, for you or any of the work you're doing. Um, so they both kind of definitely, I mean, um, are related. Well, and one of the things
1: that you're implicitly uh, sharing, which I think is really important for folks listening is that every emotion has an action tendency associated with it, right? So every Mm -hmm. emotion is like a blueprint for doing something. And so to decide whether an emotion is healthy or unhealthy or adaptive maladaptive, We can look at like, what is the action or inaction that this stimulates me to do? And if something stimulates me to collapse, hide, like uh, the vision I have is not so much being a scared chipmunk, um, but it's like, if I could dissolve myself out of existence right now and like quicksand myself down into a hole of oblivion. Like that's what I would do. Right. So that's the action tendency that, that unhealthy shame stimulates, but healthy shame, adaptive shame is like, Oh crap. I have violated my personal value system, my deepest inner compass. And now I am motivated and mobilized to set things right. Like, Oh Mm. my gosh, I said this really insensitive thing to my sister. Oh God. I feel like such a jerk. You know what? I'm going to call her up and apologize. So, so there's some kind of like, it stimulates some kind of adaptive, healthy, productive action to make things right. Or even kind of in a broader social sense, right? I feel shame about being um, not taking action on some kind of social issue. Mm. You know what? God damn it. I'm going to get involved with some kind of um, project. Yeah. on behalf of this, I think this no. is really. Sorry, go ahead, Liz. Oh,
2: you you know, um, you're familiar with Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. She she researches and talks so much about shame. Um, I remember trying really hard to wrap my head around this idea of shame versus guilt, and mm-hmm. um, I do really, I do really like this distinction that that, um, you know, I read in the past with some of her works where like guilt is useful or, or, you know, good shame. And then the maladaptive shame is the one where it's like, what's wrong with me versus like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't really like live up to my moral standards. I feel kind of bad about what I did versus I am a loser and no one loves me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And 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 to go back to your, uh, your point, um, Chris, about, what a healthy relationship looks like, you know. For me, one of the starting points is: what does a healthy relationship with the person look like? And the whole like food is fuel. Like, do I look at all of my relationships with people as purely <laughs> instrumental? Like, you're just fuel to me. Right? You just got me a job. You're you do just, if you're a narcissist. You know, but not. Yeah, well, exactly. Right, like that's <laughs> a narcissistic relationship, right? Yeah. So you know, if I think about my healthiest relationships with people, one of the things they're defined by is reciprocity, right? Give, take, and and there's a healthy dynamic of give and take. So, you know, I give them something, they give me something, and and we are constantly kind of mutually uh, supporting each other. And there's also a range of emotions that can be experienced relative to them. So you may have a healthy relationship with a friend where it's like, that's the friend where you do things together. Like they help you move, you solve problems together. So maybe that relationship is pretty instrumental, but there's other relationships you have where you do crazy stuff and fun stuff and unexpected stuff and irrational stuff. And so, you know, to go back about to what that could look like with food, I think a healthy relationship with food contains a wide variety of emotional and kind of practical experiences with it. So you can... You know, you're not restricted to any kind of one interaction with it. It's like, I can eat for nourishment. I can eat for pure fuel. Like maybe I'm running a race or something like that. And it's like, okay, I got to think about just how many grams of carbs are going to keep this body going right now. I can eat for pure, irrational, in the moment pleasure. I can eat because it's there. And like all of these things are contained within that container of healthy relationship with food. It's really more like what proportion uh, do these emotions show up and is it always irrational? Is it always crazy? Is it always cause it was there? Um, and again, what actions does this stimulate me to do? And mm-hmm. if I look at the long-term trajectory of my life, not just like what I did today or at lunch or whatever, like, what is the pattern that emerges there? And is that a healthy pattern, just like a healthy pattern of relationships that you have with a person? Mm-hmm.
0: I think this brings up the topic of this idea. And, you know, I want to get to health at every size, but I I did take some notes on this earlier today, because I really wanted to talk about this, um, this scary place of undoing this, the cycle of shame and perfectionism, right? Because this is scary, right? It's incredibly binary when you look at it from like either food is fuel or food is bad for you and I shouldn't ever touch it. Right. And it creates that system of We we talk a lot, Liz and I, about this pendulum swing of you know, the harder you hold your pendulum to one side, the bigger the backswing is going to be. And so if you're just white knuckling your way through food as fuel all the time, then eventually you're going to have some hedonistic Roman food party. And, you know, the next thing you know, you're waking up with all of this shame. Right. And so I think the the struggle I hear from a lot of my clients when they come to this place of like, wow, I do realize I have all of this shame around eating and I do realize it's fueling a negative cycle, but like. I don't want to give myself a pass, right? I don't want to just mm-hmm. let myself do anything. And so it's this difference of, you know, compassion and empathy for yourself and your behavior and where you're at versus enabling and justifying mm-hmm. bad behavior. And I put air quotes mm-hmm. around my bad behavior because I think <laughs> this is where I see a lot of my clients getting stuck. And mm-hmm. I know you you definitely have some good stuff here um, on how to sort of work within that to eliminate the binary, good, bad. Yeah. I mean,
1: and I think we have to understand what compassion really means, right? Because I think that people will say, oh, well, you know, that's letting myself off the hook. First of all, why are you on the hook in the first place? Like what kind of weird punitive relationship have we established here? Like, you know, is like, not to kind of, you know, put it in terms of like, what's your inner child kind of thing. But like, if we think about no excuses and letting yourself off the hook, that is the voice of a punitive authoritarian parent towards a child, right? And as adults, I think it's really uh, in our interest to recognize when we are continuing to live out these child dynamics versus whether we can be our mature and wise and adult selves. And so compassion is, is, you know, more about authoritative parenting, leadership parenting, where, you know, as a good parent, yeah, sure. You don't let your kid grab stuff off the candy aisle every time you go to the grocery store, right? You recognize that this is not in their interest. And so, compassion for me has this element of like honest, clear seeing of things, right? You have to be witnessing the situation in order to be compassionate. Like in order to be compassionate with you, I have to see you as you are. Your mm-hmm. suffering, your vulnerability, your quote unquote imperfections. You know, all of the the weak points however you want to define that all of the, the places where you just have difficulty or feel pain. So like, in order to feel compassion for you, I have to be a witness to what is reality for you. So part of the whole idea of like, Oh, letting ourselves off the hook, like that implies that we don't see or know what we're doing. And the reality is that with compassion, you know what you're doing you are able to show up to reality as it is while also holding yourself kindly right and that's the difference you're not pretending something isn't happening right you can look at yourself and go oh i did that but the way that i'm going to experience that think about it tell the story about it is going to be different than this punitive authoritarian parent so compassion is like look uh A lot of people are in this situation. I see you suffering. I see you struggling. I'm going to take a loving and kind approach to you that is still wise, that is still educated, that tries to kind of explain what you're doing in a way that is just fundamentally kind, right? Like most of us in the world are not. Abject assholes, right? <laughs> like, like there's always the bottom one percent. So, like, let's just you live water. in Canada, don't you? You guys live in Canada. <laughs> it's true. true. Wait, it's true. we live <laughs> in America. We have assholes here too. You know, the the assholery is abundant in in the universe. But, <laughs> but like, you know, like, what is the kind of story I can tell about myself here? And. And that, to me, is what compassion is about. So it is not. And but the, I mean, so even for the more pragmatic people who are like, okay, fine. The fact is, if you're just interested in results, compassion is still going to get you better results because mm-hmm. it cycles back to that whole threat response, right? If I'm like, ah, no excuses, you suck, KSD, blah, blah you know, and I and I get even more harsh and punitive with myself, my performance gets worse. Right. So it's not like I'm not even achieving the outcome that I wanted to. If I wanted to make myself better, punishing myself is one of the worst ways to do it. So compassion is actually one of the only pathways that work because it's the only one that
0: soothes the threat response and opens up that space of creativity. So I think this is really critical, this idea of understanding that when you're in a punitive state, you are in a threat response, right? It's you, you cannot act positively from there. And you can see this, you know, with old school boot camp coaches, you know, and with a lot of the old school models and fitness of like put up or shut up, you know, you came here for results. If you're not going to comply, you've got to go. I, you know, the number of times I had trainers when I was, uh, coaching trainers and training trainers tell me well i fired a client because they just didn't they didn't take it seriously it was like ugh, like my whole person recoiled against that because we've all had that coach. And then the universal response to that is hiding behavior. I mean, you can look at this on a society level. You can look at it on a personal level. You can look at it on a parenting level. The more you are hard on another person about something that they've done or said or a behavior or a feeling or whatever it is, the more likely it is that they're going to drive that behavior deeper, do it anyway, and actually not be able to take steps out of it. Um, and so I think this is one of the keys to understanding for you, Liz, why compassion and empathy is going to work better and how you can build that trust with yourself.
2: Because I think we they're
0: talking fear. yesterday about trust. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I think the fear, like the fear that's coming up for me right now is like, okay, com- compassion, but then can I, will I be able to, to implement compassion with wisdom, with not just I think from my pers- from my personal background I feel like I come I've seen um you know my mom really be like an incredibly compassionate person um someone call someone would call her a bleeding heart and getting completely trampled on from you know most people in her life like um you know you put that you you put what is perceived as compassion out into the world and then people and then you know Your world world is a little, and you're you're a little kind of destroyed and taken advantage of because of other, because of not putting up boundaries. I guess is what I want to say. Compassion without boundaries, Um, having figuring out how to implement that is so overwhelming, scary, and just difficult.
1: Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'd be curious about hearing you say that, and and first of all, I think you make a really important point, right? Compassion and empathy require boundaries in order to be, to, to really work. And, 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 you know, Chris will say as a coach, like you cannot just be like caring all the time, 24, seven, way more than a client is like you, there's you have to, the compassion also has to come with boundaries. Like this is, these, these two things are a package deal. Right. Mm. And so I get, for you, I'd be really curious. So we've identified that compassion without boundaries is a problem, right? You have a, you have a working model of like one half of the equation, right? You have compassion. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. That's really good. I can, I can use that as a bit of a template. Um, so what would it look like to have healthy boundaries to bring wisdom to that, because I mean, you know, you're a grown ass woman. Like, surely you have some concept of what wisdom looks like. I mean, if you could speculate, what would a wise person's boundaries look like?
2: I think when it comes to the point of if you're holding, you know, to use to use a frequent term, I think in therapy, holding space for someone. Um, I think if we're if we're in tune with our bodies and our emotions. Once you start to feel that sense of, um, like, I just cannot, I cannot hold space anymore for this, you know, for whatever's going on, even like big giant global issues of like, the world is terrible. Lots of horrible things are happening and we need to care about every single thing. Like, and then I can't get through my day because now I just can't stop thinking about the environment, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't even take good steps for myself because what's the point it's, um, I think if you're, if you find a pattern, if we're going to talk about patterns, um, if you find yourself in a pattern of not being able to move forward with any good actions, I guess, um, because you're, you're just, I don't want to say feeling too much. Um, Why not? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I guess feeling too much is like being, being empathetic um, and not recognizing, not recognizing when is the time for you to put your gaze back on yourself. Cause it's much more comfortable to put your gaze on someone else and be like, you have problems and I'm here for you and your problems. But <laughs> if it's like, well, Elizabeth, what about your problems? I'm like, I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> You know? Well, and, and, and let me blow your mind a little
1: bit, because I think that we often mistake compassion as only other oriented, right? Yeah. But like the radical thought we're having here is that like most of your compassion ideally flows towards you. Right. And in a way Not radical, but it's, it. it's, it's actually a way of avoiding compassion for yourself to over offer it to others <laughs> because, and this is a super dangerous game because who doesn't love a person who wants to help other people who cares about saving the whales, who cares about climate change, who cares (laughs) about, you know, social justice. Right. That's like unassailable as a moral position. Like no, one's going to be mad at you for that. Right. Mm. but I don't think think there are some parts of the
0: south right now that might be mad at you for that (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah I live in
2: I live I just moved to the south and I'm like yeah Uh, I wish I could say yeah because that feels like the
0: right thing but boy I do wonder yeah, sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> but again, Canada.
1: <laughs> I'm from Canada. Yeah, That's yes. yeah. <laughs> a
0: completely different. Animal. We're coming. But I mean, <laughs> I
1: wish. Like the idea is is how easy it is to avoid offering these things to ourselves mm-hmm. because we are busily offering it to others. And so, so I'd be curious what it looked like if you were really like, okay, what does it mean to take care of me, and not just me first but me on my to-do list at all.
2: Hmm. A lot of feelings come up about guilt, about selfishness. Like that's Mm -hmm. selfish. You need to be living. I think this is like some sort of spiritual religious doctrine I have. I know because my... I feel like my dad still says it to bring up my other parent. Um, shocking how that happens. Um, so weird, eh? So, so, weird. Weird. so weird. weird. Probably yeah. not
1: an though. I'm sure it means nothing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but I remember my dad is always like, you know, you need to live in service of other people and you don't want to be selfish. Mm. And he even said... I don't have kids. Um, I do want them, but I don't have them. And he's like, you want to make sure you have kids because otherwise, you know, you risk being very selfish or something, something like that. And I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. I
0: I think this brings up something else I actually wanted to discuss today, which was this idea of like, it's, it's one thing to look at yourself and try to be compassionate, but you have to also be aware of the framework that you're functioning in. Right. And so it's this shifting of lenses. And sometimes it's easy to go like all the way out to like the macro level of like, oh, society's super fucked up and everybody's like whales are on fire and I don't know what to do. Right. And that's the (laughs) biggest lens you can take. And then there's the like, oh, just me lens. Right. But there's like myriad lenses in between that, that you can choose to look through to try to generate a bit more direction for yourself. And I think that's where the struggle is because when you start digging into your own feelings, it's easy to kind of all of a sudden be like, oh, but over here, there's this. And this is somebody that said this to me. And I'm holding on to that kernel of, you know, this one thing somebody said, and it's easy to, to muddy the waters. And so what I find really useful is like, pick a lens, pick one and stick with it for long enough that you can unravel enough of it that you can go, okay, I can set that one aside for now. And then you can shift lenses again, because I feel like this, it, it makes it so confusing because it's easy and It's a natural human tendency to simplify things. I want things super simple, A and B, black and white, right? I can make this choice or that choice. And we know that there's a thing where the more decisions and choices we give a person, the worse their decision-making ability becomes. And so, if you can take these little boxes out, right, and try to put these things in little boxes that you can kind of be like, okay, that's enough of that for today. (laughs) I don't really want to look in that box anymore right now. And you go, okay, well, what about this box? Let's focus on this one for now. And maybe there's something I can actually change here.
2: So, So compartmentalizing a a little bit, yeah, a technique for, for basically being able to actually move through your day. Yeah, because I'm not talking about permanent
0: compartmentalizing because that's also, again, on the other end of the spectrum of like, that's probably not great.
2: <laughs> I just killed someone, but I'm fine. Let's have coffee. That's cool, right? This is I'm moving good. on to making
0: dinner, right? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe right. you have children who are depending on you making dinner and you had to murder that guy in order to get to dinner. You don't know. <laughs> maybe, you, maybe he was a bad up. person.
2: You were saving someone else, <laughs> 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 right? But this is, I think, something Krista was
0: saying as well as it's this idea of, You know, holding that space for yourself and saying, okay, why did I make these decisions and where did they lead me? And okay, that makes sense. And now that I have made sense of why and where and when and how and all of that stuff, I can move on. And that's what I'm saying about the compartmentalizing too.
2: Right now, how? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. That was an important question. So, how, Chris? No, because like all these feelings come up when you guys are talking. And I'm like, okay, so the emotions really cloud thinking through, you know, thinking through why am I making this decision? And you know, how did that, like in the moment, it seems when so much is wrapped up in emotion, it seems um, impossible to actually think through that because you're so confused.
0: This is such a great one. So that's the question, right? This is, we're going to throw this one back at KSC because, so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with I had this overwhelming set of emotions. I took these actions. Now my rational brain is back in control. And I'm like, ooh.
1: Well, okay. So, I mean, there's a bunch of different pieces here. And let me, I actually want to start with like, give me give me two minutes to rant first of all. And then we'll, we'll circle back to this. But like, I actually want to call it, Elizabeth, like the way that you've described yourself, like is such evidence of being a beautiful human being. The fact that you struggle with over offering compassion and empathy to others, like my God, like what a beautiful quality to have that in yourself. And I think that is something to be celebrated and absolutely valorized and not pathologized. And what occurs for you and for so many women, you know, so many girl children and, and whatever, and it happened to your mom is that that beauty in your soul gets weaponized against you. Right. So then it's like, oh, you're a caring person. You should care for everyone all the time. And if you don't, you're a selfish, shitty person. Right. And like that and, and on, on top how, of it,
2: you're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. Yeah, you're up pick a fucking lane. You know what I mean? Pick a lane. <laughs> totally. I just,
1: or a selfish, right? Like, let's let's get our stories straight. And so like but but this 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 discourse, this story gets weaponized against women. So there's no right choice. And it's and it basically functions to prop up a lot of the structures of inequality that keep us stuck in these places. So we're like constantly like, oh my god, am I too sensitive? How do I you know, like, am I selfish? Like, you know, like what a weird dichotomy, right? And by keeping us stuck in that place that conversation prevents us from stepping back and going, wait a minute, this whole paradigm is fucked. Like this yeah. whole way of thinking is a huge problem that props up, you know, the system. So, I mean, I just kind of wanted to rant about that because I think it's not accidental that women are in this position.
2: Can, I, uh, can I'm sure I there's just... a lot of guys out
1: there who are like over-serving, but I, I got to call out the gender dynamics here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I say this is this is one of the key reasons I think this conversation is so critical because it's this, it's this changing of lenses again. It's like this is the structure within we're trying to function. Yeah. Right. And it it doesn't function. And when I came to her for coaching, because I coached with Krista for a year um, at a really pivotal transition point for me in my life where I was a uh, Very much trying to achieve all the things all the time, with no compassion for myself whatsoever, and I basically got kicked off a cliff—very, very, very very big cliff. (laughs) And I, she watched me bounce down at least three different ledges, and there were a few more after we finished coaching that I definitely um, took a tumble down before I got to the absolute end of the fall. I would say, (laughs) and I don't say that as like a you know poor me thing, but it was really transformational for me because I had to come to terms with the fact that there were so many conflicting demands on me. You know, at one point I was too nice and I did too many things for other people. And then it was, well, it wasn't enough and I wasn't getting all of my jobs done. And then it was, but you're aggressive and loud. And, you know, the number of times that being opinionated or aggressive gets weaponized against women when they've had enough, I think is another piece of the rant I would like to add on to because this has always really been a battle for me. How do you show up in a workplace without having opinions and lead?
2: I mean- (laughs) You got to be soft enough. <laughs> soft enough to not be threatening. but still right. way better than everyone else. And there's just this
0: impossible like pretzel game you're playing with yourself at all times to try to fit into whatever mold that specific situation is asking of you. No wonder it makes us all, you know,
2: mm-hmm. dowdy mm-hmm. and,
0: and self-conflicted.
1: Powerful. Like if it comes from dad, let's say, or the dad figure, right? Like when he says you're selfish, what he's saying is I don't like your boundaries. Yeah. Really. Oh, he hates my boundaries
2: Yeah, and everyone's boundaries. He hates boundaries. (laughs) So, but, but,
1: you know, when we receive those messages, when we're younger, we internalize them, right? We're like, oh, I guess I must be selfish because dad is uncomfortable Mm. with my boundaries. Right. And Mm. as an adult, we now have the capacity to kind of go back and like our, the equivalent of our child photo album, like on, you know, look at all those like templates that we absorbed. Cause I mean, my, my family had a whole conversation about selfish too. Right. And and it was only in my 40s that I was able to kind of step back and go, is that really like, am I really a terrible serial killer sociopath because I don't want to come for every holiday dinner? Like, is that really <laughs> right? Um, so so this feeds into kind of circling back around to your question, which is what do you do about mm-hmm. things when you feel very overwhelmed emotionally and you know, we know that, I mean, there's a thing called emotional reasoning, which is that when you decide it's, it's you deciding what to do based on the emotion that you feel in the moment, which sometimes works, right? If it's a happy emotion, you're like, yay, I'm just going to go with it. And then other times it's like, you know, I feel really sad. So this thing must be really screwed up. So, so the analogy I would put on that is similar to what we do in nutrition coaching, where we try to balance intuitive eating. What what I mean by that is like, training people to notice, you know, their hunger cues their fullness cues when I'm truly physiologically hungry, what I would truly like to eat, what's going to help my body. How do I feel like all those kind of physical sensations with what do you do in the times when you can't feel those cues or they're not helpful. So for example, when I travel back in the, back in the before times, when we got on airplanes um, you know, when I traveled across time zones, I always noticed that my hunger cues would get all scrambled. And, and so, you know, for a few days it was like, I don't want to say I couldn't trust my body, but I had to recognize that these cues were unreliable, right? So what do you do in that case is you, this is a great opportunity to work with a coach is you have a set of strategies and structures and principles that guide you in those moments. Um, So they're not rules, but it's like, I know that I'm not going to be able to feel my inner compass in this moment So that knowing that I have come up with a plan when I am in wise mind, not when I'm in crazy mind, like, you know, scrambled and hungry and stretched and whatever, but like working with someone else during a moment of wise mind, I have established, these are the principles that they're going to guide me. And it's almost like your cheat sheet that you like, you pull it out and you're like, when I feel crazy, I will, it's like, you know, in case of emergency, break the glass. Right. And so like one of mine is never have a heavy conversation with your partner just before bed. Because when I'm tired, what? I become a toddler. And it's like, if I look <laughs> back, I'm like, every stupid argument I've ever had has probably started at like nine o'clock at night. Yes. So now I just have a principle, do not, like if, if it goes into that direction, I'll just be like, nope. <laughs> like I just, tomorrow, right? at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. And by then <laughs> it'll be like, oh, that was ridiculous. So um, I guess, you know, recognize when you become emotionally, uh, reason, like when you're reasoning from emotion and go, oh, what's my,
0: what's my, You can't see this if you're listening, but like, I'm, it's like a piece of paper, right? Yeah. What's my plan?
1: Mm -hmm. We talk
0: about this a lot in, you know, when I take clients on and stuff is like, Hey, you know, I'm going to help you draw your map. Yeah. I I don't know what your map is. You know, I, you can point at a destination, but I'm not sure where you started from yet. And so from getting from where you are to where you want to go, like, we've got to actually come up with that map. And that's literally what you're talking about is this idea of these guiding principles and frameworks. And I feel like this goes back to, if we look at the industry as a whole, when we hire a coach or when we're looking for somebody to help us with this, what we really need to be looking for is somebody who understands the framework underneath the changes that we want to make. Because that's what you're asking for really is like, give me a decision-making framework Mm. that I I can apply and that's reliable and keeps me safe and out of this you know, trauma, place this, you know, responsive, um, super sympathetic nervous system place where I'm just making impulse decisions, right? That's what the map is for. That's when you pull it out. And so, you know, I think I kind of want to ask you, Liz, like what are the tools you feel like, what are the destinations of points on your map that you feel like we've established so far that could help you out of some of these moments?
2: I think getting away from calorie counting helped. And so now I focus just on having like three meals and one snack. And just to get like super granular with it, just kind of going back to like, what's my one, what's my one thing I can do right now. Like what's my one meal. Um, just trying to I hate to use this really overused term, but staying present, I guess is probably what's happening right now, especially when you're in panic mode, flight mm-hmm. or flight response, even if there's no, I mean, there's almost never an external threat. Thank God. I mean, besides the environment and people. But beyond that, whales on
1: fire, remember the whales, yes, on, whales fire. on fire? The whales sure. on
2: fire because <laughs> of all the oil in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, it's it's usually like this perceived like you got to take care of everything at this one moment, or the world will come to an end. You're in charge of keeping everyone else alive. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's kind of narcissistic in a stressed out way, right? I don't know. I'm in charge, Chris. Um, Can we just pause (laughs) and notice that point, right? Like, think about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because, and and here's, here's, I mean, to circle back around to compassion, right? Compassion and empathy require an authentic connection with another human being or with the situation, right? And often when we think we are being compassionate, what we're actually doing is imposing our own egocentric story about what someone else would need or someone else would want. And that's when we start to like overhelp or over care. It's like the, you know, the annoying mom who comes over and is like, you're not wearing a sweater and you're like, mom, I'm 45. <laughs> 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 and, and that's a great example of that. Right. And, and it's all done in a very well-meaning way, but I think it's actually a really dangerous game when that caring becomes kind of an egocentric caring where you're mm-hmm. not actually really engaging with the other person or the situation. And so I think what compassion asks us to do, like compassion is actually, um, I don't want to say demanding, but it asks something of us. It asks us to stop. And as you say, get present and really go, what is actually happening here? What is this other person feeling? Uh, What is, what is occurring in this situation and how can I show up to it? Not what does my old script tell me that I should do to be a good little girl here. That's Mm. the hard work because Mm. what the, what the situation commands, what the other person needs is often really different
0: than what your story says. Well, and you Mm. know, you can, you can filter this through, different cultures too, is, you know, I used to be a cross-cultural trainer and I would help families integrate from one culture into another. And all of the exercises we would run were literally around that right there. It's mm-hmm. like, this moment is not going the way I think it should. I'm doing all of the, you know, quote unquote, right things. Why is this situation still going sideways? And it forces you back into this place of, of presence and questioning. Like, what mm-hmm. can I observe of this situation? What are my behaviors that I am currently doing eliciting from the other person. Is that the response that I want? Is that accurate to what I think is going on or what think I think should the response should be? And I think it's what led me into sort of the the I hate to say it nutrition coaching, because it's no longer I think nutrition coaching anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is sort of why I wanted to talk to you. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to talk to you about your evolution evolution as a coach as well. Because I i I feel like I've experienced Something that may be a bit similar in this of like, oh, wow, wait a second. Like, it's really hard to step out of my own perceptions and stories and beliefs about every situation that I'm in. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort to do that because my brain is wired to make things as easy as possible for me at all times. So if I'm not really stopping and paying attention and being really uncomfortable in the situation, how can I possibly know that my perception of the situation is accurate? Yeah. And it will never be accurate. Exactly. I mean, that's the conclusion you come to, isn't it? It can't be. (laughs) No, it will only ever be
1: partial. But what that means, and and I think you're right to allude to it as work and effort, because like, let's say you're having a relationship conversation, right? To truly hear the other person requires a tremendous amount of work. Uh, And even as a coach, like one of the things coaches don't do often on average is that they don't stop and go have i understood you correctly like here's what i just heard you say here's my understanding of your situation did i actually get that right and you know when they when they do research when in psychology when they do research on uh, whether that's empathy of like a doctor some other kind of clinician a coach consistently what they find is that My perception as a practitioner, perception of my own empathy and how well I got the situation is much more, I think I got the situation way better than my (laughs) client or patient did would rank me. And so like, we actually have to have very effortful mechanisms of checking and reflecting and hearing and co-processing so that we arrive with like a shared sense of meaning at the end. Mm. Which still doesn't perfectly overlap, right? Like I feel like, if, like the Venn diagram circles are are never <laughs> going to completely overlap perfectly between coach and client, or practitioner and patient, um, or person in person. It, I mean, or person in person, yeah. And it's astonishing how far apart they can be. And mm. so, to really do this work is deeply effortful and, like you say, uncomfortable. Because what if the other person reveals some kind of Perspective on the world that doesn't make me look good, right? Like you just said something that was kind of racist. It's like, oh God, no, that's not who I want to be, Mm. right? So now I have a fork in the road. Do I disavow that? Oh no, I can't be racist. I'm a good person, blah, blah, blah. Or do I go, oh, Uh -oh. uh, I have to dig in. Uh Oh, why does it always have to be? There's that feeling of like, oh, why is there always more work underneath the work I just did? (laughs) But (laughs) that is the work, that is how it works in life.
0: My husband has this um, whole thing on types of fun. And I know he didn't make it up. He found it somewhere, but you know, there's type one fun. It's fun now. And it's, you know, maybe not such a great idea as you look back on it, but it was super fun right now. And then type two fun is like, it's not very much fun now, but I'm glad I did it and I got some benefit out of it. And then type three fun, there's like four types of fun, but it always makes me think of this. It's like whenever you feel like things are going too smoothly, they are like you're missing something in that situation. And I think that's the, The foundation underneath type one fun and type two fun, right? Like, it's like, gosh, you know, if, if you're, if you're not doing that work, are you really getting everything you can out of that interaction or situation? And it's not always about maximizing what you're getting out of something. Like you can just show up and be like, cool. That was fun and and go away. That's okay too. But like in situations where you're actively trying to change something, how much type two fun are you up for? (laughs) And kudos
1: to Elizabeth because clearly Elizabeth is up for all of the so difficult much fun, too fun. Uh, the, the <laughs> digging in. I mean, and, and there's value in kind of taking a break from that too, right? Like we can't always be investigating our stuff all the time. Like there has to be moments when we're like, you know what, I'm just going to figuratively or literally lie on the couch and fart and just like fill my cup <laughs> and, and replenish myself in some way. I like, I need to step out of this river of ongoing contemplation and Mm self-improvement and growth because you can't you know you can't just keep with making withdrawals from that bank account forever um there has to be replenishment Mm
2: -hmm. that 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 leads right into because I was just about to ask how do because what keeps coming up for me and I know it comes up for a lot of people especially since we've been through a quarantine is like I really want to try and I really care and I really want to move towards goals and progress. But at the same time, I'm so burnt out and tired and I'm just, you know, it's so scary because you feel like, well, if you drop the ball, you drop the ball. And what does, what, I mean, I'm sure it's not perfect, but what does healthy, laying on the couch and just farting look like beyond laying on the couch and just farting? Like what would be a good technique for that? I think maybe that's (laughs) our next episode.
0: I mean, I think that's what we're just going to spend an hour recording. uh,
2: Like that time we ate cake
0: (laughs) (laughs) at the time we ate cake. We did a whole episode on just sitting down with an entire cake, two cakes. Actually, we got two cakes yeah, and we just worked our way through all the feelings of that cake sitting in front of us and that cake going in our mouths. And yeah, it was amazing. Right. But, and then yeah. you get to go actually lie down and not think about it for a while and zone out. And it's cool. Right. Cause you need that processing time. And, well, how... and I think
1: you have to distinguish between what is me being still, like, what is me being immobilized? So sitting, watching TV is me being still, but it's mm-hmm. not me being calm. It's not being me being replenished. Right. And so you know, one of the activities is often suggested is to sit down and and ask yourself, what are things that are truly
2: soul filling for Mm -hmm. me? Um, what does that feel like? Like if you were to, if someone was like, well, what does that mean? What does that feel like? What does that feel like?
1: (laughs) That's a great, that's a really great question. I I would say probably feels lots of different ways, right? So let's, let's take the feeling of, You, are you a dog person or a cat person, Elizabeth? (laughs) I (laughs) have three. I have three. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So there's, so there's a feeling that you get when you're like, I'm just going to take the next five, 10 minutes, not be on my phone or anything like that. And I'm just going to play with my cats or my dogs. And we're going to throw the ball around or do whatever it is they like. And they're going to do silly things and fall off the couch and whatever it is cats do. And I'm just going to like be with them and pet them and enjoy them for just the, the ultimate catness that they are. That gives you one feeling. Like, that's a feeling of like connectedness and fun and playfulness and just being in the moment of enjoying something, doing whatever it does. Right. Another feeling is like a deep calm. And that's kind of like the feeling you get. Let's say you worked all day in the garden and it's like the hot sun and you moved rocks around, like you really got a kind of a good sweat on. And you sit down on the couch at the end of the night and you're like, oh, but you feel so satisfied. So you feel tired in body but not spun up in mind. There's like a clarity and a calm. You feel a sense of accomplishment, satisfaction. That's another great feeling. Right. Um, Another one is, you know, I just took a, one of the things, great things, about living in Vancouver, Canada is there's lots of hiking. So I just spent a couple hours in the forest yesterday and you emerge from that, just like the feeling of like ah nothing, none of your, yeah, it's like, ah, and it's like, around old growth trees and somehow emails or whatever bullshit of your life just seems irrelevant and you're you're muddy and you're stinky and and there is like a uh, almost like a feeling of having shed like metaphorical soul weight you mm-hmm. feel lighter mm-hmm. if that makes sense
2: yeah uh, is it are any of these resonating yeah Absolutely. I mean, as someone who like, I just love trees and hate people. And yes, <laughs> I, just, I, I love people individually. I absolutely hate, no, you hate humanity. I'm <laughs> really, I'm really scared and intimidated by people mm. that puts me in a panic, but trees. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. humanity's yeah. making some troublesome choices lately. Living in the Humanity
0: has always made troublesome choices. It's (laughs) true. It's the beauty of, you know, history. At least it makes you look back and be like, okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Nothing's changed. And in fact, I think it was Dustin F.T.
1: that said, the more I love people, the more I hate humanity.
0: So there you go. (laughs) Mm. So I want to just bring it back around to sort of um, talking about your personal evolution as a coach. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I think this is something... You always have so many amazing questions and perspectives, and you do a fantastic job as a coach in that coaching sphere of keeping your personal self very distant from that. But I would really love to know how your perception has changed over the years of yourself as a coach.
1: My perception of the work or my perception of myself? A little bit
0: of both, because I think both have obviously evolved a bit and I'd be curious to know what you feel the, the larger evolution of the coaching industry has been, but also like, what was that process like for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people I think feel like, oh, I have to be perfect to be a coach. Like that is the job of the coach to be some kind of shining, iconic example of perfection so the clients look to you and they're like, oh my God, you're some kind of deity. I want to be like you. How do I emulate that? Right? Like that's, I think, fundamentally what people believe coaching involves. And I, I feel like actually the more you choose to put yourself in the way of experiences or experiences come to you, but you can actively seek them out, that is what makes you a coach. And, and particularly difficult experiences or growth promoting experiences. they're just new experiences. Um, you know, that is really fundamental to the coaching journey because it's almost like you are working with a larger and larger and larger palette of paint colors. So if your world is very limited as a coach, and I think, Chris, you know, I know from the fitness industry, there are those people who were athletes in high school, decided that they liked fitness, decided fitness would be a good career, went became trainers, and, you know, all their friends are trainers, all they read about is exercise and training, and so, you know, they arrive at age 30 or 40 or whatever with very limited worldviews and experiences. And especially in, in some places in the US where we know like many people don't even have passports, like they never mind being out of the country, they haven't been out of the state, out of the county, out of the town. Right? Mm. So, you know, I think unfortunately, in some ways, many corners of the fitness industry have been dominated by people who have very limited worldviews and experiences to be able to offer their clients. So I think if you're a trainer or a coach, you know, one of your first jobs is to go out and seek a whole variety of different experiences, different kinds of people, people, not in the industry, people who don't give a shit about the industry, Um, you know, travel once, once it's time, go and travel the world, get that passport, go and see how things are. And it, you know, and it really, really broadens your perspective. I know that's such a cliche, but it really does. And so to purposely seek those out as well as have those find you. So the other piece of that is, you know, I, I was glad you talked about falling down the mountain because <laughs> that is what you need to truly be able to connect with people and to say yes, I have been in the shit place. And so I see you are in the shit place now and and maybe it's a smaller version or a bigger version, whatever. But because I have been there, And maybe yours is completely different than mine, but I can connect with the core sensations that you're experiencing in some way or another. I understand. um, I'm going to understand because that's a tricky word. Right. But I can I can relate to what you're going through. Loss, vulnerability, shame, like talking about shame dude, I know shame, right? Like I know shame inside and out. (laughs) And so like that's, that allows me to connect and have a conversation about shame. Right. So the more that coaches are able to develop their emotional repertoire, their social repertoire, their life experience repertoire, the better coach they are and the more imperfect a person they are in certain ways. Right. Because when you devote yourself to the project of growth and change and, and I don't want to say self-improvement, but like just kind of developing as a human being, again, the more you can offer your clients. And so in terms of my own evolution as a coach, I've always been interested in these kinds of questions. I've always been fascinated by change, what makes people change. And, and especially when I worked a lot with people who are doing gender transitions, I was Mm. fascinated by people who transitioned at all different ages. And, And back in the day, you know, like when I started in the 90s, a lot of people would have waited until like age 50, 60, 70 to do a gender transition. So it's much different than it is now where, you know, like you could be talking to your parents at age six about it and they'd be cool, right? Way different. So the thing I was always really interested in was what, after 70 years, what made you decide today's the day? That's fascinating to me. So I've always been interested in change, but as I've aged, as I've gone through life experiences, as life experiences have happened to me, it's really just deepened the practice of coaching and added like layers. Like I'm I'm making the gesture of like, like making a baklava Mm -hmm, (laughs) layers of delicious coaching, coaching pastry (laughs) have accumulated. And I think we shouldn't fight that as coaches, you know, so many Mm -hmm. coaches are like, oh, I'm not in amazing shape anymore. Uh, I had three kids and I worked 12 hours a day at a gym and I'm so busy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not as, you know, I can't see my abs or whatever they imagine this is. Well, good, because that's the situation your clients are in and now you can actually relate to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, or, or, Oh, I've gone through this huge loss. I've gone through the pandemic, you know, I'm burnt out. Like you said, Elizabeth, like if you go through the experiences, you can relate so much better to your clients.
0: So that's the journey I've been on really. I think that's super important because if we take it from the fitness lens particularly, right? Some of the people who are held up as the best coaches in fitness are people who are embodying this physical perfection, right? And they they achieve this sort of guru status and I'm, you know, I'm going to just straight out say I think Instagram is about the worst thing that ever happened to fitness because it it enabled even more of this. It enabled this perfectionism persona. This, like, I have this perfect life, I do these perfect things, I eat this perfect diet, I do the perfect workout, and everything in my life is perfect. And I think it it can be really demotivating and demoralizing for clients coming in who aren't there. Um, and this is one of my big struggles with it within the industry, because it we're not serving, I don't think, the people that really, really need our help. Right. We're we're alienating them a lot of the time. And I and I think this is why I'm asking the question about your personal evolution evolution as a coach, is because. I'm, I'm deeply committed to humanizing coaches and making Mm -hmm. people realize that the imperfect coach is probably going to be able to help you more for the reasons that you said, you know, it's like, I've had these life experiences. I've been really fit. I've been really unfit. I've been, you know, I've tried and sampled many different eating disorder flavors and decided Mm -hmm. which one was the most applicable for that period of my life and (laughs) ran with it. And (laughs) then thought, no, no more of this. And, you know, I think those, Experiences, like you say, are are what add to my layer cake of coaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that you you've written about it, and and there have been, you know, years and years have passed since the CBS after school specials highlighting the young anorexic girl who's suffering in silence. Um, and I think it's a really important discussion today to to talk about the modern face of what disordered eating really looks like. And it it kind of brings us back around to this, what does a healthy relationship with food look like? And can we really limit it to our relationship with food? Or are we really talking more about like, what does deep health look like? Because can I have a healthy relationship with food if I don't have a healthy relationship with the people in my life or the environment that I'm living in is challenging. So, you know, Liz Liz likes to say, I, I always seem to go off in all these directions and tie it back up. And I think that's where I'm going now is like, how do we tie this all together? How do we say, okay, like, this is the direction we should be heading in. And and here's what I think some of the most important steps are.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, using that term deep health, which is something that we use at Precision Nutrition, I mean, really what we're talking about is this kind of multi, like all the dimensions of your life, whether that's your mental health, your emotional health, physical health, the health of what's around you, the health of your relationships, the health of your sense of purpose and meaning. You know even your sexual health, right? Which is something we don't talk a lot about as as women. And we debated about whether to put sexual health actually in our textbook. Really? And we we decided that it, it cut a, we decided that it cut across a lot of other domains. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't go there, but you know, I think that's a huge part of it too. And as as women, I think that's a whole conversation we're not necessarily having, but <laughs> um like you know, really people treat often their relationship with food as somehow different. Than everything else in their life, right? Um, and it can be. I mean, we know that relationships are domain-specific. You have all different kinds of friends, you have the, like I said, the friend that helps you move, the friend that knows all your <laughs> secrets. Like you we have all kinds of different relationships in our life, and that's normal. Um, but if you know we step back and look, how we experience food ha- says a lot about how we experience other aspects of our lives. And mm-hmm. so, for example, like one of my personal habits is. I have to remind myself to stay in the present because I'm a very near future looker, right? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? So sometimes I eat that way too, right? I'm on my way to a meeting, shoveling food and like out of in my face, like what's next? Oh, I have to get to my three o'clock. I have to, you know, what's next, right? So, you know, a lot of this is about, a lot of deep health is about noticing and looking for relationships and going, okay, how does what's happening here in this part of my life reflect connect to symbolize influence whatever all of these other dimensions of my life so if i'm struggling with food um let's say i struggle with um i don't know uh difficulty like managing how much i eat right like maybe i struggle with binge eating or overeating or or like impulsive decision making around food well hmm. How does this reflect, like, maybe I'm restricting too much elsewhere and food is the only escape valve, Mm. or maybe I'm highly impulsive everywhere else in my life, right? Maybe I impulse shop, maybe I blurt out things (laughs) when I don't want to, (laughs) right? You know, like, so it's really, it's more like, instead of, and to circle back around to compassion, it's like, instead of looking at our eating patterns as a way to, you know, a way that we suck, basically, It's more like getting curious and saying, This is very interesting. Like, what is this saying about other aspects of my life? Uh, What is this helping me see? And what is this helping me avoid seeing in my life? But I think it's certainly true that what we would call disordered eating now, you know, like I think people's mainstream concept of what disordered eating looks like is not how people actually experience it. And in 2021, in a world where, hyper palatable, extremely tasty processed food is so readily available that our eating routines and cues are so out of whack that people are under such tremendous stress and overwhelmed and struggling and without anchors of you know social rituals and cues. I mean, 99% of people in some way meet the criteria for disorder, maybe not 99, but like a significant proportion of people are somehow eating out of sync with what their bodies require physiologically. So that's, I mean, it's a pretty broad definition to, to the degree where it's interfering somehow with their health and their well being and their life and their activities. That's how I define disordered eating. It's some kind of way of eating out of alignment with your physiological requirements that interferes with your life in some way whether Mm. that's just making you preoccupied at all times and thinking about stuff or whether it's like you organize your life around it. Oh, I get, I get to go home and do this thing. Right. Uh, That's how I define it. So I can look all kinds of ways, eating too much, eating too little, eating things that aren't helpful for you, Mm. you know, uh, hiding food, having weird routines around food, like all of this stuff. Um, So it's it's not to pathologize everyone. It's just like, this is actually a very, I mean, it makes complete sense if you consider all the contributing factors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you look at our society as a whole, and I've always talked about this with clients too, it's like, you know, lots of other cultures and I'm not sure about Canada. I've not spent a huge amount of time in Canada, but if you look at France or Germany or Spain, they all have much more structured eating rules and rituals around food. And it was when I lived over there for um, a few years that it really highlighted for me just how different my behavior and like thought process around food was. I can remember in college, you know, somebody calling me up at 10 AM and I'd just gotten up and had a bowl of cereal and saying, Hey, let's go to brunch. And I was like, yeah, brunch is awesome. And I would immediately then go and eat something else. And so I think there's a lot to be said for your food environment too. Like what are the rules of the food environment that you're in and how does that impact the decisions that you make day to day? Cause you, you talked a bit about that. You said that, you know, people are facing all of these highly processed, highly palatable foods and they're everywhere and it's all the time. And then to not apply compassion to yourself and be like, I'm a loser, I suck because I can't resist this environment all the time goes against the fundamental balance of finding a healthy relationship with food. Because if, if we look at what you described, when you say, this is what disordered eating looks like is it's too much of this too much focus, you know, or thinking about food um, out of context or whatever, like our whole society right now is doing that. Yeah, And so how do you swim upstream then, right? So a healthy relationship with food right now is the not normal thing.
1: Hmm. I mean, a healthy relationship with anything is the not normal
0: thing. It's true, (laughs) that does feel that way, doesn't it? And it's it's very
1: (laughs) profound and important work. And that's why a coach is so valuable, right? Like all of us in a way are like figuring this stuff out and learning social skills and mental skills and emotional skills and physical skills and human skills Mm. that unfortunately we were never given. Um, and, and, you know, to go back around to compassion, we have to forgive ourselves for that because we were parented and raised and, and had our lives structured by people who, you know, for the most part did not have a sophisticated emotional intelligence or intelligence about life in the world, or could, or were able to give us the skills that we needed. That's most of our experience. Mm. And so generationally, I sort of think about like, you know, we have the opportunity to think about doing things differently and to learn how to do things differently. So the fact that we don't have these skills, like where would we have learned them? I mean, I grew up in the seventies, like everyone was like smoking and (laughs) drinking tang and like putting their kids in the back of the station where I have no seatbelts on. Like how would I have learned sophisticated emotional self-regulation? Like that wasn't even a thing, right? No, there was nowhere to go, right? (laughs) There was nowhere to go. So we have the opportunity in 2021 now that we know about brains and bodies way more than we did. I mean, here's, you know, if, if we can kind of close it off on like a happy note, here's your opportunity. If you're someone who's listening to this to go, oh, it's not a personal personality flaw. It's not a character deficit. It's skills that I didn't learn, but I can
0: learn. Absolutely. So I'm curious to, you know, cause on the note of checking in on the perception of somebody else, because between KSC and I, like we're both talking from the coaching side, right. From this, this, you know, here are the skills and this is what you learned. What are you hearing, Liz? What, what are you taking? What are you Mm -hmm. taking away from this?
2: I mean, it's, (laughs) it's a lot. It's very overwhelming because, you know, I hear everything and I'm like, yes to everything I'm hearing. And, um, at the same time i guess i just keep thinking you know you you just said um that we can we can basically i think you said something like we can unlearn um, or we can you know get better at this um but i really i guess i really i really worry like how when we're so inundated chris you said it with we're so inundated with um uh you were talking um about like about food and everything. But then, um, on the, you know, on the media side, we're just like, it's, it's nothing, but a bunch of toxic absolute sludge. And it's so normal. It's so like deeply ingrained, you know, the, there's a part of me that's like, is there, you know, is there hope? Like, can I, without going completely, what was it, Captain Fantastic? That movie, <laughs> <We> <laughs> love <laughs> that grid so resonant. <laughs> and if like, oh if is that the only way I'm going to be able to ever, you know, understand who I am and and you know and exist in a way I actually want to um, and undo all the, I want to say damage that I, you know, I really come from the the media perspective. I feel like i I just feel like um, it's so it's so horrific out there, and there's so much there's so much badness, you know, which is why again, Chris and I try to do this because in our own small way, i'm I'm hoping that we're there we're helping to be a, a, a some sort of sanctuary for people, you know, not to be so grand about it, but some place where people are not going to get the same absolute. Crap that they've been fed by uh, most of the media. They can have new crap. Our new brand new of crap, crap is what they can have. Like, have they tried burrowing into a tree? It's actually really great. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think this is.
0: If you look at it from an evolutionary and you know sociological behavior standpoint, right? This is how human beings function. We come together. We break apart right and when when one group is doing so much of something and a few individuals in the group say oh no I don't, I don't like that then they break off and they go make a new group and so this idea of potentially closing down and and moving away from some of that stuff that you're not appreciating taking in i don't think that's such a bad plan right and and this is the idea of you know we can talk about tribalism which is not necessarily such a great way to go about things at this point but it's there for a reason right it's there because we are a group animal right we don't thrive completely alone but we do like a little bit of being alone we like our independence and finding that balance between your personal level of independence and your personal level of collaboration with other people is i think part of just figuring yourself out and there is no one right answer like maybe it changes too. Maybe like in your thirties, you're like, people are awesome. And I want to be around people all the time. And your friend's like, yep, cool. Done that. I'm dumb, dum over people. Like no people for now, just cats. And maybe you do that for your forties. And then you can come and change that anytime you want, right? But think, it's about yeah. figuring out those those things that you that are important to you now and acting on those things.
2: Hmm. And I think that you, that you bring up... <sighs> You bring up like such an interesting issue and I want to get Krista's thought on this being, you know, being not, not in America, in the American culture, there's such um, there's such a feeling of isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the pain points are, where it's like, we don't have a strong sense of community and like, I'm not alone in this. A lot of it feels like I'm alone and it's us against them, Mm -hmm. especially now. You know, and how that in how that affects our feelings of safety and um, you know, oh, definitely. Simon a- Cynic. <laughs> yeah. And, and Simon the cynic <laughs> in the background there. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of, you know, which then of course in turn affects our relationship with food and eating and fitness and doing anything, basically, that's not hiding in a hole. Oh. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things I would call out here is the danger of 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 being all or nothing about it, you know, and I fully like I love that film Captain Fantastic. And so I fully like I joke about going to live in my Unabomber cabin uh, in the woods somewhere. Right. So I think like that that speaks to an impulse that all of us have. But I think, you know, it's it's important to call out those moments of all or nothing thinking of like, either I marinate in the toxic swamp of bullshit, or I go live in a cabin in the woods, right? And there's, <laughs> there's lots of options in between. But you know, one of the questions we always ask at PN is like, what's the five minute action version of this impulse that I'm feeling? Maybe the impulse is towards greater community. What's a five minute version of that? And I think it's really easy to say, we as a society do X, Y, and Z. Well, who's the we, right? Like I am in the we. Uh, and so if there is something that I don't like or something that I feel uh, you know could be better, I can take a five-minute action and several five-minute actions cumulatively to make that better. So if I don't feel a sense of community, I can go knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey, what's up? right? And like, I can sort of make this happen. And so like one of the ways, here's an example of a five minute action. So in Canada, unlike Americans, uh, we don't talk to strangers generally, unless you're from the Maritimes, the East coast, they're, they're a different animal. Different. They're very friendly gregarious. Yeah. But in general, like I was, I grew up in Toronto, right? You don't make eye contact. You don't talk to strangers. Like it's just weird. So when you have Americans come in like, Hey, stranger, hey. how are y'all doing? It's like, ah, get away from me.
2: Right? Am I still really Canadian? <laughs>
0: See, you just need to move to Canada. (laughs)
1: You may be this may be your home, but you know. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start talking to strangers. And you know, I did this many, many years ago. And so again, not like long conversations, but I might just say hi. How's it going? Nice day we're having. You know, whatever. Small talk. Nice dog. Like whatever. Uh, Can I pet your dog? What's your dog's name? I'm very. I like dogs. Dogs. Um, (laughs) Right. And and I discovered that when I started doing that, suddenly community appeared for me. Mm -hmm. So I think we want to be very careful about understanding where we have the power to act and the power to do. And, and, and maybe this is the note to end on, right? The empowering note to end on, like you have the power to act in the world. And so, you know, feeling powerless, I absolutely get it. Like there's forces out there that are so much bigger than we are. There's flaming whales, right? But you always (laughs) have the power to act. And, and that is so crucial to remember one minute action five minute action 10 minute action Mm. that is where change comes from and so you know we've had our moment of consciousness raising where we've shared stories and shared stuff now we can go out in the world and say you know who do i want to be what do i want to manifest what's the five minute action of that um you know, how can I start doing that today? So it's, it's 3.30 PM my time. So I still have time to do it. You may not, I don't know what your time is like. You may you, know, no. you may only have 4.30. Four yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: there
1: you go. So you have time, you have time to get stuff done. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I'm being a little bit flippant about it, but do not allow yourself to be made powerless because you are not. And that I think is really crucial
0: to understand. You always have power to act. mm yeah, it's Anna again. It's that Frozen two thing. I always tell you, it's just do the next right thing.
2: The next you, right thing. Uh, you harass me with Frozen, even though I, do, <laughs> I like hate Frozen. But you know what? There's some dang good messaging in there once in a while. And in um, and in Roadhouse, which I I read, I read you canonical Dalton from yes, canonical. And I was like hell, yeah, Dalton. Every time I watch Roadhouse, I'm just like, that's who I want to be. Now that's who I want to be. <laughs> He's so, he's so wise and Tai Chi, like shirtless. Be nice until it's time not to be nice.
1: Right. I love
2: it. that. That's one of my no. That's boundary. <gasps> right. Sorry. I guess I just had an epiphany with the boundaries. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, it is 3.30, 4.30, 6.30 for all of us. And this has been so much fun. And I've really loved all of the amazing things that have come out of this. And I, I think flaming whales are obviously going to feature in the title of this episode because <laughs> I mean, they, they seem to have marked everybody. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us. And you know, if there's any one thing you think, you know, would help people listening, like what is it? Let's let's be reductive and let's boil it down to one thing.
1: Ooh, there's one thing. Well, it is that compassion works better than criticism. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe me, feel free to try an experiment. Take a day, criticize the shit out of yourself. See how productive you are. Take another day, be super compassionate, wise, thoughtful, caring, kind with yourself and see what happens. And, and that's your answer. So rather than me telling you, oh, compassion is important, you know, you get to try it out for yourself and same thing with people in your life, go and criticize the crap out of your spouse. See how that goes Mm -hmm. next day. You know, be super compassionate with them. See how that goes. Mm -hmm. Like these are experiments you can test to see how these principles work, but I'll tell you, I mean, the research is clear, uh, whether that's sports performance, life performance, just being a human compassion works better than criticism. Mm -hmm. So
0: practice it today. (laughs) There you go. That's your, that's a great sign off (laughs) five minute takeaway. So you Mm. can find Chris Scott Dixon in many places. She does have her own website, which is phenomenal and a hotbed of interesting topics that we didn't get a chance to cover today. You can also find her in any of precision nutrition's writing. I believe she's still doing a ton of that. I can always hear her humor coming through whenever I'm reading something. (laughs) So yeah, check her out. We'll post up some links on the podcast page and uh yeah thanks for joining us today thank you my pleasure thanks for a great conversation Hey, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And I hope that today's episode made you think a little bit about how you could apply some of what we're talking about to yourself and your behaviors and let us know if you find any of it meaningful. Make sure to tune in for the next episode where we will continue to have somewhat circular conversations that may be helpful.
2: They will be. They will be helpful. (laughs) It's what you take away from them. The more you know.